Friends, please pray with me. Father in the heavens, I sure need your help today. Some of this material is so difficult. Uh, As disciples of Yahshua, we appeal to you to reveal to us everything in here that is worthy of your greatness, your goodness, and your kingdom, and let everything else fall aside. In the name and through the blood of Yahshua, Messiah, we pray. Hallelujah. Brothers and sisters, I'm Brother Michael Bannock from Fulton, Missouri. May all the grace of Yahshua be with you. The title of my remarks today is, So You Want to Save the Country. This material will be an overt appeal to activists in the audience. And I will strive to be fair to all sides. I'm going to talk about left and right. I will try to be generous. I'm going to talk about... um, some specific uh, topics within those arenas. We're going to talk about left versus right comparison. We're going to find this country is not so divided as we think. We'll do a case study on fairness. Then we're going to tap the brake and go back and revisit Yahshua's trial. Because in the context of his trial, he weighed in on one particular principle that's important to us. We'll go back to some more case studies. We're going to talk about the occupiers who are out there. We're going to talk about equality versus equity. A lot of talk about that lately in the national conversation. Then we'll talk about the missing ingredient. And finally, some emergency actions. I don't care about the size of my audience. If any of this material touches a nerve for you. I'm always concerned about the letters being too small. Let's compare the left and the right. Let's get right to it. First, we're going to start with the left. The left-leaning friends of ours, they are fervently dedicated to the equality of all people. This means a dedication to equal outcomes for all. It also includes equal treatment for all and a dedication to drive fair and proportional representation of all classes of people in all institutions. For example, if we find that minorities are underrepresented in all those juicy jobs out there, juicy jobs, well-paying jobs, respected jobs, management jobs, if minorities are not adequately represented, there must be a problem in the process of hiring them. That's an assumption driven by their dedication to equality. And the same analyses can be overlaid on college admissions, sports, income inequality, social justice. And the worldview there includes an implicit desire to avoid judgmentalism. It is rare that they will blame an individual for a bad outcome. It'll be more like the system's broken, the process is broken, culture is wrong, society's wrong. In the militant side, I put up a a cover of a magazine there. That would be like on the far left, this Ms. Magazine, showing you some of the controversial things they're into. Let's talk about the right. Notice, by the way, how I I shifted all the text to the left of the screen. Now it's on the right of the screen. This is trying to be a little artistic here. Okay, the right is also fervently dedicated to the equality of all people. And this means a dedication to equal opportunity for all. It also includes equal treatment for all and a dedication to provide a fair chance to all classes of people and all institutions. So let's take that hypothetical from a previous slide. If minorities are underrepresented in all those juicy jobs out there, there must be a problem in the process of preparing for those jobs, including lack of initiative. Bad breaks. In the, in the worldview of the right, the bad breaks must be overcome as a necessary step toward success. Let's take college admissions. This bunch believes that you should have the same entrance criteria for all regardless of outcome. For example, if the entrance requirements for a top college had a certain cut score to get in and all Asians got in, it wouldn't bother someone on the right one bit. Sports, may the best man win. That's, that's how they look at it. 
When it comes to income inequality, surely, in their view, this must be traceable to poor effort or lower ability. And there is some concession to lower ability, uh, that uh, some people don't have as many skills, and maybe they will have less income because of it. So when it comes to social justice, the same rules have to apply to everybody, regardless of circumstances. And the right worldview includes an implicit desire to find root causes, even if it's painful. If I get to the root cause of my failure, I may find that I'm the failure. And that's, that's a painful reality, but I may have to face it. So why is the Gats didn't flag there? Well, we're talking about trends here. And when you study any groups, you can talk about the trends, but there'll always be some counter-trend activity. But as a trend, our friends on the right resent it if the government forces upon them some of the worldview of the left. They said, don't, don't, don't make me responsible for all these things that you're trying to fix. So um, I'm going to, when I inject opinion here, it's to create some context and flow, but I'll still be biblical about it. You may have other opinions about what should float to the surface and what is not important. But within the leftist camp, here's the things they complain about themselves. Typically, it goes like this. You are not left-leaning enough. Um, we voted you into office, and you didn't appropriate enough money for that jobs bill. Or we voted you into office, and you let big business get away with lower taxes. That's when the left, our friends on the left, complain within their own camp. Now, our friends on the right, they have their things they complain about. We voted you into office and you didn't clean house like you promised. Or we voted you into office and you failed to enforce the laws, the laws of the land. These are common complaints I have heard in these camps. Let me use that last one as a stepping stone to the next slide. You failed to enforce the law. And I'm going to talk about some things I admire about both sides. What do I admire most about the left? I'd love to hear what you say uh, at a later time, but our friends on the left, they fight vigorously to uphold the laws and rules that they endorse. In fact, I kind of admire that. That is a kingdom mentality. We expect someday to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Why is it that people on the right, just they seem to like lose their spine when it's time to enforce the law? Now, I know there's some selectivity on the laws and rules that our friends on the left will enforce, but at least they do it. At least they stand up for it, and it's kind of admirable. I, 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 I receive that as a kingdom mentality. What do I admire most about the right? Well, they pray for the nation. All over the country, there's people praying for this country praying for revival, praying for better leadership. I don't see those prayer movements happening on the left. Now, I can be wrong. You know, it's possible they've escaped my notice. But for the most part, I'm seeing calls for prayer and, and things like that among people on the right. What do I dislike most about the left? Well, sometimes they endorse folly as fairness. I saw a YouTube clip, a gal came on a news show and said, she reports that there are men now claiming to be women and they're entering into women's sports and they're gobbling up medals, cash awards, and scholarships. And the girls are sitting on the sidelines saying, how can we compete against this man dressed as a woman? This is an abomination in Yah's eyes. Furthermore, I don't think all my friends on the left endorse that. I haven't had a chance to ask them. But um, that, that is just preposterous. But it's going on. Because remember, in that worldview, everything's equal. Everybody's equal. Every lifestyle choice is equal. Every choice is equal. Everybody's equal without judgment. Another thing I don't like is that there's an insufficient concern over waste, fraud, and abuse in the government programs they endorse. No desire to take care of that. Well, very little. Now, we'll talk more about that in a while. But what do I dislike most about the right? Well, remember, a moment ago, I said I like the fact that they pray for the nation. But the thing I don't like is that so many of them use profanity. 
You'll hear it on the radio. You'll see it at political rallies. They might open with prayer, but before the rally's over, you'll hear some profanity there, all foreign to the spirit of truth. There's also among them, I've observed, an insufficient vision for useful government action, because there's some things government can do. I can understand if they don't want to do it through the federal government, because the Constitution limits that. But there's plenty you can do to help society at the local level and the regional level. And at times, they, folks on the right are not too interested in pursuing that. Now, let's be fair. The trend I'm about to tell you has been studied so many times, it's like I think they're getting tired of it. But when our friends on the left want to help people and help society, they will think usually, not always, but they usually think in terms of a government program. Where folks on the right want to help people, they'll do it through a charity, through, uh, you know, as a group, private charity. And so it's not like both sides are negligent in any way. They are action-minded, but they're thinking in different types of solutions. In the late 1990s, a researcher and author named Alan Wolf conducted wide-ranging interviews in the, and around the country, and he discovered that Americans were largely in agreement on most issues. And he wrote a book about it called One Nation After All. It would shock you how united most Americans are on most issues. That doesn't mean they're right, but it means, it means they're... We actually could get along pretty well. At times I wonder who the troublemakers are. Who really wants to divide us so we can't talk? Even an issue as divisive as affirmative action showed promise of resolution. I'm going to tell you what he found on this. He went around the country and one of the things he asked about was affirmative action. And we're going to talk about that a bit. But he noticed that the minorities were saying, yeah, we need affirmative action to make things fair. And when he talked to non-minorities, they said, no, we can't have affirmative action. That's unfair. And even though there was disagreement on that, he thought, golly, if we could just get people to agree on what's fair, we could come together pretty quick. If we had enough facts on the table we would probably come together really fast. Let's do a case study of some of the stuff we're dealing with as a nation. This story means a lot to me. I'm hoping I can do it justice. I cannot find a photo of that fellow when he was a young man in the mid-1980s. His name is Yat Peng Ao. He had top grades at Gunderson High School in San Jose, California. He was active in sports. He was socially active. He was said to be a social animal. He was guilty of great community service. He was an entrepreneur. I'm going to do a quote here from the LA Times. At the school's honor assembly in May, Yat Peng was summoned so frequently to the stage to accept medals and trophies and certificates that he began to duck his head and smile self-consciously whenever his name was called. He was the winner of seven awards. Kind of reminds us of a friend of ours locally. Huh? We went to a good friend's graduation. Remember one of our local members? He was, I, thought, I thought the stage was going to collapse with all the awards he had up there. He was a good kid, and everybody loved this kid. He was Chinese. I'm not sure if he was born here or if his parents brought him here. There's a photo of him on the next slide there with his children. When he was a boy, he dreamed of attending the University of California at Berkeley, and he worked furiously to qualify for admission. Nice thing about this country is you can come from anywhere. You don't have to look like anybody who's here already. You can come from anywhere. Take the test. Take the oath. You're an American. Anybody can come here. That guy's 100% American. But he couldn't get into Berkeley when he was a boy. He was rejected. His family hired a lawyer and performed an investigation. They found he was rejected because there were too many of his kind already at Berkeley. He was rejected because of his race. This is in the mid-80s. You can look it up. He was showcased in Dinesh D'Souza's first book, uh, Illiberal Education. 
The interesting thing about this story is that these are minorities, it turns out, fighting over quotas. And the white man has nothing to do with it. The white guy's on the sidelines watching. Admission advocates who push for affirmative action directives never think about students being ready for the Berkeley workload. Here's what happens. Um, these kids come in there, some of them will... They were found, a number of kids got into Berkeley with lower scores than Yat Pangao. That, that's when his family hit the roof. Because this was a great kid in all dimensions. I have been unable to confirm it, but I know his test scores for entrance were in the, like approximately the 95th percentile. That's blowout high. But he was rejected for people with lower scores because they were trying to create some kind of proportional balance there between all of the ethnic, they weren't ready. So what did they do? They gave them remedial math and remedial English. Now their workload is doubled, and they're crushed. The thought of already behind students struggling with remedial math and remedial English should scare the daylights out of you like it does me. I'm not Berkeley material. I didn't blossom until sophomore year in college, and that's when I started getting A's and B's. Now I just sort of had an awakening. This kid hit the ground running, but they wouldn't let him in because he was Asian. We have enough of your kind here. Go home. He won a lawsuit. He did go to Berkeley. He went on to two other colleges. He turned his back on the electrical engineering degree that he earned, which is kind of funny because, you know, me, I dreamed of being an electrical engineer, and he went into business. He became a real estate developer. Could you, just asking you a question, because I don't know how you feel about affirmative action, but could you make affirmative action work instead of rejecting it out of hand, as some do? I got in trouble with my conservative friends in the 80s because I thought affirmative action was a, a good idea for a short period of time because we inherited a mess uh, due to slavery and Jim Crow laws. We kind of inherited a mess. I know there's other causes, I know. But I thought if we had a limited period of time where we tried to make up for lost time, well, anyway, I, I suffered just a small amount of um, pushback on that. But I found out recently that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, she was with the right-leaning wing of the, of the Supreme Court, she also supported affirmative action for a limited period of time. There was a problem there to solve. I don't think it exists anymore. But, you know, uh, the question remains, how do you make sure the unqualified do not wind up in critical positions having got there merely by their ethnicity? A woman can fly a jumbo jet just as good as a man, but you wouldn't want to lower the requirements just because she's a woman. I wouldn't want to be on that plane. Acts 10.34, Yahweh is no respecter of persons. Now, using an affirmative action framework, minority students with dads, successful dads who are doctors and lawyers, in other words, the kids from Malibu, they are benefiting from these programs supposedly aimed at remediating the disadvantaged. So what happens is rich, rich minorities from Malibu, they, they can go to Berkeley because, well, they're the right ethnicity. That, that, was, that wasn't the idea. The idea was to help the disadvantaged. Here's an alternate approach. They did this at AT&T, and I have evidence that Berkeley is doing this now. An alternative approach is to simply take a close look at the candidates who had fewer opportunities in life, yet they came almost as far as someone who had lots of opportunities. Now, that makes a lot of sense. If you got somebody before you who's a candidate, and they come almost as far as somebody who had lots of opportunity. But in fact, the, one, the candidate you're looking at had to swim upstream all the time. You take a close look at them. Well, that's one answer. I'll give you a biblical uh, approach to that, because I don't like putting a problem on the screen without offering some kind of biblical vision for it. How about making your own affirmative action plan? Do things Yah's way. In my experience, observation, and research, success comes when people have kids that finish high school. Proverbs 24, verse 5 says, A wise man is strong, yea, a man of knowledge increases strength. 
People are successful when they develop a skill that someone will pay for. Proverbs 24, 27. Prepare thy work without and make it fit for thyself in the field and afterwards build thine house. In other words, go get a skill, a field of work where you can pay your bills. Then you talk about building a house. Another one is don't make babies until you're married. Um, This should be kind of obvious. You know, Senator Rick Santorum, when he was running for president, he tried to make this a central point. That real um, advantage, real privilege comes from finishing high school and keeping your family together, developing a skill that somebody will pay for, and don't make babies until you're married. There's another one, too, and that is to build prosperity one generation at a time. I'll give you an example here in central Missouri. There's a famous family. I'm not going to mention their names. They're uh, they're African-Americans, and when they were released from slavery, they combined their money, all their assets, they pulled together as a clan, and they bought up all the property they could. And two of them were clients of mine when I was running the surveying company. Uh, They're very prosperous now. Who knows, maybe after a few generations, they may fall back like, like Americans are prone to do, right? But anyway, they thought in terms of building up the clan, building up the family, and building up the prosperity among them. Now, this little by little stuff, this is biblical, but I'm going to give you the, the best example I can think of now. It's from Deuteronomy 7.22, and there's a similar passage in Exodus 23.20. And Yahweh your Elohim will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. In other words, if you take on too much at once, you're going to get devoured. Just like students who got into Berkeley on a set-aside and they weren't ready. In my ancestry, I've got uh, I'm, two generations ago were immigrants. So I'm the first one in my family line to go to college. My amazing nephew, which would be the next generation, he's going to be a doctorate. He's going to have a doctorate. And that's what it takes. Now we're going to tap the break and talk about Yahshua's fulfillment of a particular prophecy. When we do this little comparison of left versus right. When Yahshua was before Pilate, he gave witness to a divine principle for this age. But first I'm going to talk about something. It was essential to a prophecy of Jacob that the right of self-determination be taken from Judah just before the Messiah comes. In Genesis 49.10, it says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now, this word for lawgiver, if you look it up, it has nothing to do with the Torah. It's somebody who announces decrees, particularly capital punishment. I know I talked about this a bit in a previous message. Well, this prophecy was fulfilled when Pilate briefly gave the Jews the right to declare capital punishment for the Messiah. Instead of using his authority as a regional governor, he said, let the Jews worry about it. Why did he do that? Why did Pilate hand the whole thing over to the Jews? You know, once the Jews declared capital punishment, they lost the scepter then for good. To declare it on Yahshua, they never had that right again. It is a well-documented fact. They could not do capital punishment without the approval of the local governor. And in that case, he washed his hands of the whole thing. Why? There's three reasons. Number one, Pilate's wife had a terrible dream about Yahshua the night before. And she urged Pilate to have nothing to do with, quote, that just man. Number two, Pilate found no evidence of a crime in Yahshua. Yahshua claimed that, number three, Yahshua claimed that his kingdom was not of this world. Quote, otherwise my servants would fight, end of quote. We see in John 19, 2, and from thenceforth Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whosoever maketh himself a king speaketh against Caesar. In order for Pilate to find Yahshua guilty himself, he'd have to have evidence. I want to draw your attention to that bowl in the lower right-hand corner. 
If you recall, the night before Yahshua was arrested, the night before, when Yahshua was arrested, Peter whacked off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Remember that incident? And Yahshua healed him. Yahshua healed him right on the spot. And if he had not done that, they would have presented that bloody ear as evidence against him. Here you go, honorable Pilate, this bloodthirsty, ruthless man from Nazareth and his thugs are a bunch of warriors. Look at this bloody ear. They cut that ear off last night. If Pilate had been shown that, he would have had no choice but to condemn Yahshua himself. There are messianic teachings surrounding this incident, and they speak to today's material. Number one, the disciples were allowed to take swords. In Luke 22, verse 36, it says, the one, Yahshua says, let the one without a sword should sell his cloak and buy one. The disciples were allowed to have swords. Point two, just two swords were enough for the 12 of them. They said, look, master, here are two swords. That is enough, he answered. Now think about that. It's okay to have a sword, but two for 12 guys is plenty. Number three, political violence is not allowed. In Matthew 26, verse 52, Yahshua said unto to Peter, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now, how's that for keeping things in balance? And again, what he told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Now, Yahshua promises we will be empowered to reform others only after cleaning up our own life. Now, that doesn't mean they will respond to the message, but there's a special grace that comes with overcoming, a special grace to persuade others. Violence is not allowed for disciples of Yahshua. It's just not allowed. And I know people want to come running to me later and talk about the revolution and all that. I'll talk with you about it. But how are we going to save the country Yah's way? Hmm? Question, is it violent to occupy government property? Some of you might know about the incident I'm going to describe here. Recently, angry protesters occupied the nation's capital. The Senate building was overrun with protesters. Work was stopped until the crowd was removed. Those arrested, about 300, were charged with crowding, obstructing, or incommoding, according to Capitol Police. Another nine people were arrested on the fourth floor of the Dirksen Senate office building and charged with unlawful demonstrations. This is a report taken from The Hill. Maybe you know what incident I'm talking about here. <coughs> it was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Did I catch anybody off guard there? It was the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. And yeah, it was an Occupy situation. Was this an act of violence? Was occupation of government property violence? There's a clip of a video. When, when he was finally um, approved as Supreme Court Justice, on the day of his swearing in, another crowd came to the steps of the Supreme Court and they were pounding on the door trying to get in. So it was like a second occupation. Was this an act of violence? Well, here's images from two occupations. One is the one on the left that we just talked about. The other one is on the right. That's the famous January 6th protest. Why was the one on the right taken so seriously? I know, I noticed the upside-down flag. Yeah, That's a symbol. When somebody flies a flag upside down, they're saying the nation is distressed. It's a sign of distress. Uh, so uh, what was the difference? I did not put this in the notes because I could not find the words to put it in the notes. Let's just say we all should be careful who we hang around with, who we're going to protest with, who we're going to run around with. Because even though everybody there was unarmed, our friends on the right will tend to endorse gun rights. Again, they were all unarmed. They said they, 
They were told to peacefully protest. I know some of you are going to tell me later, oh, Brother Mike, there was infiltrators there. But it still comes down to who are you hanging around with? And you might lose control. By the way, that girl who was shot, recent evidence has emerged, a video has emerged, suggesting that the crowd turned on her. And she was actually trying to run away from them. And I invite you to research that. I don't have any conclusive statements on that. But the crowd on the right was taken more seriously because they built up to that point. How can I say this just right? For those who don't know, they might perceive that as a greater threat. And it wasn't, but they might perceive it as such. Was it wrong to occupy a place? <coughs> in both cases, they were allowed to penetrate the grounds and the buildings. Nobody stopped them. It was really kind of interesting. What can we say about this? I want you all to be very careful what you get mixed up with. Be very careful. We'll do a case study of equity versus equality. Now, the image, the cartoonish image there is pretty famous. It's been passed around a lot. Don't know who made it. But we have on the left three individuals trying to watch a sporting event. Oh, it's a baseball game over a fence. The one on the left is already tall, and he's standing on a crate or a box. The one in the middle, he's standing on a box too, and he can see over just fine. But the one on the far right, it's, a, it's on the left side of the panel under equality. He also has one box, but with that one box, he can't see over the fence. Well, one could say that they have equal opportunity because they all got one box to stand on. For those promoting equity today, they're saying, look, take one of the boxes, take the box from that short. The one in the middle, he's okay. Leave him alone. And so now the little guy on the right, he can watch the game with everybody else. And that's a way of illustrating equity. Now, look, analogies and illustrations, they have limitations. I'm going to pick on this one a little bit. I must acknowledge it is instructive, it is informative, but there are shortcomings here, as you'll see in a bit. <clears throat> Number one, the three of them are crooks. Think about it. They owe the stadium the price of admission. Nobody's ever talked about this. The people who built the stadium, they deserve to be paid. The people who put the show on deserve to be paid. The people who bust them in... All that, they owe them the price of admission. So these are three crooks. And I'm not impressed with the smallness of their crime. They owe the price of admission. Next question, what happens when that boy grows up there on the right? When he grows up, is he going to hold on to his crate? Is he going to hold on to his box? When the day comes when we don't need affirmative action anymore, are we going to let go of it? We're going to say, we're past that. There is an industry built on government programs. It breaks my heart to acknowledge this. But uh, I want you to keep that picture in mind because it will serve to illustrate something important shortly. I'm now going to talk about uh, a trend we see going on. Let me go backwards just a bit. The, to make that formula work, turning equality into equity, it will require us to take by force the box underneath the tall guy. And a lot of people resent that. They'd rather see that fulfilled with charity. Let's go forward. Now, the numbers may not be exact. I'm trying to illustrate a point. But most of us in this country get about 15% of the pie, 15% of the wealth. Most of us are only getting about... The majority of the people are getting a minority of the, of the wealth. And you can't get around that. You have the richer, 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 richer people getting richer. And over time, our share of the pie has gotten smaller. That is verifiable, too. Can't get around it. The numbers support that. But there's more to it. There is a little more to it. Now, this pie chart that I made up, it puts into an image what I have read in other places. There's clearly a gulf appearing between the poor and the rich. And the middle class seems to be getting flattened out. 
Well, there's more to this. You see, what really happened is, yeah, the, the proportion of the pie for the rest of us has shrunk. But the pie itself has gotten bigger. And you can't get around that either. You can look at the GDP for the nation skyrocketing year after year. You see, today's poor is not like yesterday's poor. Today's poor is running around with Nikes. I can't afford them. They got gadgets I didn't have when I was a kid. We were poor when I was a kid. We didn't have any of this stuff. Today's poor is not like yesterday's poor. And so what happened is, whereas the gulf has widened between the rich and the poor, both of them have risen. I helped one of the brethren move here. I was doing some early research on housing. With few exceptions, all the apartment complexes I visited were government-subsidized, government-assisted. And this brother's pensions were so big, he couldn't move into those places. So I had to go looking for a place that would just let him pay rent direct. Funny thing, though, in all these places where they were counting on government subsidies, the cars in the parking lot looked better than mine. And that bothered me. Like, well, look, I want everybody to have a nice car. I really do. But it was hard to, to, to I, got, I got over it, but I had to shake this feeling that I was helping to pay for all those nicer cars than mine. In the present economy, the tall guy got three boxes, the guy in the middle got two boxes, and the short guy got one box. In other words, they all started out with three at the bottom. The short guy got the one box he, want, he needed to watch the game. The guy in the middle got two. And the tall guy who can already see just fine, he got three boxes. So he's so high up, he might fall out. That's kind of what's happened here. Now, because of this growth and prosperity, everybody wants to take a victory lap. Our friends on the left say, see, all our government programs did the job. And on the right, they're saying, look, you made life easier for big businesses And so now the poor have been risen out of their poverty. So they're all claiming credit and taking a victory lap. See, our policies did the job. And those who are dedicated to those worldviews, they think, yeah, that's the truth of the matter. I'm about to show that both of these views are lies, jumbo lies, and they play right into Scripture, direct. The left sometimes acknowledges the waste, fraud, and abuse resulting from their methods, but they deem it a cost of doing business. They describe it often as a war, a war on poverty. Like any war, you're going to have casualties and you're going to have waste. And believe me, war is very wasteful. They say, look, that's just a a price of doing business. The waste, fraud, and abuse is always going to be there, but at least we're helping people. And And the folks on the right say, yeah, there's a growing gap between rich and poor, but making the rich even richer is a cost of doing business. So everybody's dug in, saying, we got the answer, we know there's a downside, but we got the answer. Here's the reality. If things are really getting better for everyone, and they are, where did all this prosperity come from? Do you know? Can you think of it? It's the national debt. Now, this is an early one. Uh, It hasn't been updated. It uh, doesn't have the contributions under President Trump's era, but it climbed quite steep in that era, too. This traces the national debt. At the time this was written, it was about $18 a little less. Right now, the national debt's like $23 trillion. That's where everything came from. This is all about our prosperity. Everything you, I don't like to speak rhetorically. So much of the prosperity that we're enjoying now, I'm going to say most of it, it's all borrowed money. And so the left and the right cannot claim victory as long as we have this national debt staring us in the eye. Whatever they claim they achieved, they did it with borrowed money. You'll see a green patch in the middle that was during President Clinton's era. It looks like the national debt was going to come down. But if you look at the the tick marks on it, I was a tech tech pro at the time. I guess I still am. 
But everybody knew that was a tech bubble there in the late 1990s. And so what happened is the government got lots of tax revenue from transactions that were largely fraudulent and had no hope of blossoming into full businesses. Uh, to put it another way, if you took all the business plans that were proposed in Silicon Valley and you laid them end to end, you would have something like 30 times the market that was really there to serve. It was all a speculative bubble. And because people were buying equipment and paying lots of money for expertise, tax revenues went up. So there's a green spot there under Bill Clinton. But as soon as the tech bubble burst, you can see the debt climbs rapidly as if making up for lost time. The whole thing's a lie. The whole thing's a canard. This is so sick. This stupid debt is a curse and everyone knows it. You can blame Congress, you know, the ones you voted for. You can blame them. It has nothing to do with the... It's somewhat dependent on the president, I understand. But Congress is explicitly told in the Constitution they have the power of the purse. I'm going to use the word we. We wanted things from the government that led to this. A righteous nation would not tolerate this madness. Here's an example of the mess we're in. While the nation needs righteousness more than anything, Congress this weekend is considering legalization of marijuana. That's where their priorities are. Despite all the problems, all the sorrow, all the pain, all the debt, they're going to debate legalizing marijuana. That's their priorities. In Proverbs 14.34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Good old-fashioned righteousness is our only hope. There is no other answer for this country. There is none. There is nothing. Do not think, oh, we vote this guy in office. Oh, yeah, if we get this bill passed, if we could just fine-tune where we spend our money as a nation. No, there is no answer like that. We need righteousness. Our manifest sins have dulled the national senses. We, we're having a hard time even thinking straight anymore. Well, worldwide debt is over the top. I mean, this is just one country, but debt is all over. Let's press on. I'm going to give you my pet theory. Everybody has a pet theory. I have a pet theory. Here's Brother Michael's pet theory. Promote righteousness, exercise righteousness, teach righteousness. That's what the nation needs. That's what people need to hear from us, who are privileged to stand behind the microphone. We've got to find creative ways of leading people to righteousness in our everyday life. We might have to develop clever language like, I think you know better than to do that. So now I'm going to pivot for the rest of my time here. I'm going to pivot to emergency mitzvahs. Mitzvah is a Hebrew word for commandment. And we're just going to hit some bullet points. My desire is that if I call you out on something, that at the same time you're always playing upon your spirit and telling you to swing into action and fix it. So maybe these are principles as much as they are commandments. I'm just putting this in the order of what I think the country needs help on immediately, like right now. Like the ship is sinking. Well, point number one is it's going to cost you something to embrace righteousness. Yahshua said that these kernels of grain, they don't bear fruit unless they die in the ground. And that's how it's going to be for all of us. To embrace righteousness and to grow into a prosperous life, a proper life, some parts of you are going to have to die. You've got to count the cost and pay up. You'll be paying up in terms of people, places, things, and habits. People that induce you to sin... Places you go that tempt you, things that choke you, choke your spirit, and habits that detract. Emergency mitzvah, number one. Maybe I should have put this first. But the first greatest commandment, love Yahweh first. Love your creator first. may take you a while to get used to that holy name, but it's the universal name. It means existent one. 
One of the greatest challenges right now are all these people out there who are saying he doesn't exist, yet his name is a declaration that he does exist. He lives. He exists. Love him first. This was Yahshua's secret weapon. He said that was the first commandment. Did you ever wonder how did Yahshua beat back on temptation? He made a decision early in his life he was going to love Yahweh more than anything. Friends, I hate to admit it, but it's taken me all these decades to figure this out. That's how he pushed back on temptation. There are times you'll resist temptation for the benefit of people you love. What would my mom say? What would my wife say? We resist temptation because of the people we got to face. He made a decision early on he's going to love Yahweh more than anything. I had a sister back east in the faith once to ask me, could you pray for my brother-in-law, she said. He's been unfaithful to his wife. He doesn't love himself enough. Well, I reacted to that. You see, people don't sin because they fail to love themselves enough. Despite all the new age happy talk out there, people don't sin because they fail to love themselves enough. People sin because they fail to love Yahweh enough. That's the love they're lacking. And you've got to love them more than yourself, Right? My evidence that people already love themselves. They absolutely are crazy about themselves, though. Pamper, powder, and please themselves above everything. Well, that was Yahshua's secret weapon, is to love Yahweh. For those of you out there who are first getting acquainted with the holy names, maybe you know him in another way. I urge you to embrace his holy name. But you know you have a creator. The next thing is to receive Yahshua. You know, his teachings are irresistible. His teachings are absolutely irresistible. They have a weight and authority that cannot be denied. Receive him, make him your your rabbi, your boss, and he will teach you. That's our secret weapon. People who are not even into the Judeo-Christian ethic recognize the superiority of his ethics, including atheists and Hindus. Mahatma Gandhi walked around with a copy of the Sermon on the Mount in his chest pocket. Emergency vitva, do charitable deeds. Now, Yahshua calls this tzadakah, righteousness. Remember in the great sermon, he talks about doing your righteousness before men, your alms before men. It's tzadakah in the Hebrew Matthew. Excuse me. Daniel urged charitable deeds upon Nebuchadnezzar to avoid the cursed dream. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had that bad dream about going crazy. And Daniel says, seek righteousness and do good things for the poor. Remember, the rich guy came to Yahshua and said, what can I do to have eternal life? Well, I'm not going to go down that path right now. But you know, very few ask, what can I do to guarantee eternal death? What can I do to guarantee I I burn in Gehenna? In Yahshua, when he talks about the sheep and the goats, he gives you a guarantee you're going to burn in Gehenna if you do not do charitable deeds. Now, one more thing, that line at the bottom there, go direct first. Right off the bat, I know my friends on the left are going to say, charitable deeds, let's get another government program. And then my friends on the right are going to say, let's do a 501c3 organization. Well, right now, there's plenty of 501c3s out there. You can work through any of them. But I like the idea of going direct first. Even as I stand here, there are people among us who are sick, afflicted. We have some elderly. Some of them are homebound. They could use some visits. They could use somebody dropping by and say, hey, you got a taste for some fried chicken today? Maybe I can get you a burger. Can I run an errand for you? This stuff is like right there for the plucking to to participate in this kind of activity. So I recommend you go direct first, but you should be doing something. Emergency mitzvahs. This is, you know, this is bullet point stuff. I'm hoping those of you upon whom Yahweh is, is pouring his spirit with conviction, that just calling this out will get you moving. 
Dads, rebuild with your children. What a tall order. This is a national crisis. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows this is a national crisis. Fatherless homes is skyrocketing across all ethnicities. In the book of Malachi, Yahweh promises he will smite the land with a curse if this is not remediated. And it kind of rhymes. This country's due for judgment. And fatherless homes are on the rise. <coughs> Can I call for a glass of water, please? Mm. Now listen, let's, uh, let's pour some oil on this. In the scriptures, when a child is raised with one or both parents missing, we find often Yahweh has a special calling on that child. Maybe that happened to me. There was no daddy in my home. When Yahweh becomes you father, it's a very unique experience. But it's no reason to willingly architect such a thing. Dads, rebuild with your children indeed. Uh, The journalist and researcher Candace Owens spoke before Congress that fatherless homes are the biggest problem facing our black neighbors today. Rebuild with your children. Here's here's a couple of ideas. Thanks so much, Javon. I'm going to pause for a, a, a swallow of water. Big one. Broken promises with your children lead to the development of reprobate behavior. Here's what I want you to do. If you're dads, if you're dads, Go to your kids and ask them, have I ever let you down or have I ever broken a promise? Bring a pad of paper and a pen. Be ready to write fast. They will remember things that you never thought was even a promise. You said you were going to do, you said, I remember. Write fast. And then you have to make up for it. You have to ask, beg their forgiveness if you have to. And then follow through on those promises. Unless... You know, unless it's a done deal. You know, I like, if I promised you tickets to the 1990 World Series, it's a bit late to deliver on that now, isn't it? But everywhere possible, you should lay siege to their hearts and rebuild with your children. And it's going to take time. I know some of these cases are very ugly, require long-term thinking. But rebuilding, you dads, rebuilding with your kids is a serious... Remember, Yahweh says we would take the land little by little. Restoring this nation is going to happen little by little. Emergency, uh, next emergency, mitzvah, get out of debt. Your debts are hindering you from saying no to unrighteousness. If you're on a job, suppose you have a mortgage, you want to send your kids to college, other debts, and... Your boss asks you to do something illegal, unethical, or immoral. How can you say no if you need that job? Your debts are hindering you from saying no to unrighteousness. Proverbs 22.7, it says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower a servant to the lender. Next emergency mitvah, avoid and stop addictions. There's multiple subtopics here. Addiction and natural chemicals. Now, The word for sorcery in the New Testament is pharmakia. It's a Greek reference to the abuse of herbal elements to induce susceptibility to demonic forces. It leads to addiction and personal destruction. Everybody knows this. Everybody knows these drugs, these pharmakia, hurt people. You should move heaven and earth to break free of this stuff. It would be the fight of a lifetime for some of you, but it's worth it. And don't ever start. Don't think, oh, I'll try just once. I got to know. I got to know what this is like. I'm going to try just once. Don't think that. And today's marijuana is not yesterday's marijuana. It's all juiced up. These are natural chemicals that people are abusing. Then there's man-made. Look at that. I wanted to say man-made, and it said mad-made. I'm sorry. Well, maybe, it's, maybe that's more accurate. There are man-made chemicals that are addictive, too. Everyone knows about this to some degree or another. For example, the sugar, the sodium in our foods, excessively in there. Few realize that processed nutrient-depleted food fails to satisfy natural hunger. 
And this increases the searching appetite. Well, you know you want something, but no matter what you put in there, it isn't satisfying you. And you're doing this in a quest to give the body what it really demands. Now, I've found at this point in my life, I feel very satisfied with salads and oatmeal and eggs in the morning. Well, those are natural things that Yahweh made. But there are times when I'll, like, I'll put the taco chips in my mouth. I say, but it, it tastes good, but it's not satisfying me. Because Yahweh didn't make it, that's why. Are there foods that you're addicted to? I claim that if you're addicted to something, you know it. Get real. You can check by seeing how hard it is to stop. Here's a big one. This is a, this is a big one. Addiction to moods. Ooh, addiction to moods. Melancholy. I wonder if I misspelled that. Melancholy. Going beyond natural grief. My research evidence is accumulating in so many places. There are people who refuse to be comforted. They're holding on to bomb, or they're holding on to a relationship, and they just refuse to let go. In James 5.13, it says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. That is the best remedy for any, any a down mood. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. But you, you can search the scriptures and find there's, a, there's many things at our disposal to comfort us. If someone refuses going down the path of, of seeking divine comfort, they got a problem. They're addicted to that melancholy. There's also the problem of bitterness, resentment, feeding off past offenses. And some of this is getting ridiculous. There's... Um, there was a, there's been a movement lately in California to try to arrange for reparations for slavery. California never had slaves, and they refused to become a slave state. Where did that idea come from? Most of the DNA in this country came here after the Civil War. But there are people who are trying to leverage the, these old problems and make a buck. Instead of having constructive solutions, they're feeding off of old bitterness and resentments. You should take it to Yahweh in prayer and ask for deliverance for all that stuff. Addiction to technology caught you. I caught you. Addiction to technology. The dopamine rush from wave after wave of exciting information. New apps which follow our every command. New and interesting things. The nation is hooked on the dopamine rush from information overload. And I've as of late, I've had to make a habit of pushing away from the workstation. But I look around me, I see people just all day on the mobile device, all day playing around with it. I saw a couple having lunch. They never talked. They never even looked at each other, fiddling around with their phones. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, the great apostle to the Gentiles says, All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. If you can't put that thing aside, you've got a problem. And finally, addiction to pornography, which is related to technology. There's a statistical likelihood that a fraction of the people in the sound of my voice are addicted to pornography. This is what they find in most churches. I don't think that's an issue here, but maybe in the outreach it is. Who knows? Like, like any addiction, you have to make this your mortal enemy. I don't know if this is going to help you, but I haven't looked at that stuff since I was a teenager. And I made a decision one day. I thought, wait a minute, how would I feel? I'm just a teenager. I thought, well, what would I feel if I opened up one of these magazines and I saw a next of kin in there? And that sent a chill up my spine, and I didn't want to, ooh. I don't want to go anywhere near that stuff after that. You've got to talk yourself into pulling away from each of these things. Here's a quote, a paraphrase from the great preacher John Wesley. If you love Yahweh and receive his Messiah, he will deliver you from your sins and sanctify you. And those scriptural promises are within reach for all of us. Finally, I'm going to give you a word on activism. I'm winding down. 
Activists want to seize power. This is their game. They want to seize power. But their policies are only going to be flawed as long as we don't have righteousness. You've got to have a righteous country on which to overlay good policy. The Occupy movements, the election fraud, and it goes on on both sides, by the way, in case you're wondering. Then there's methods to artificially amplify your message. Here's a better approach. Promote, exercise, and teach righteousness in order to be worthy of receiving power and authority yourself. I want you all to be good citizens, good dads, good husbands, good wives and moms, good kids. Only then, when you're righteous, will your efforts to influence or join the school board, the library board, or the city council, only when we are righteous can we have a lasting effect. In fact, leading your community when you are made worthy, becoming a leader will come natural to you. Well, I'm concluded with my remarks there. I thank you for um, your kind attention. May Yahweh bless you.